From VinePair's New York City headquarters, this is End of Day Drinks, where we sit down with the movers and shakers in the beverage industry. So pour yourself a glass and listen along with us. Let's start the show. Today on End of Day Drinks, we're talking to Shannon Mustafer, spirits educator and author of the book, Tiki, Modern Tropical Cocktails. We'll get a crash course in the history of rum, talk about her days bartending, the future of cocktails itself, her book, and she'll actually give us some tiki tips and we'll talk about her future plans. Let's start the show. Hi everyone, and welcome to End of Day Drinks. I'm Joanna Sherino, executive editor of Vine Pear, and as always, I'm here with members of the Vine Pear team. We've got Tim McCurdy, Elgin Nelson, and Kat Walensky. Today we're joined by guests Shannon Mustafer, award-winning bartender, spirits educator, cocktail consultant, and author of Tiki, Modern Tropical Cocktails. Welcome, Shannon. Thank you for joining us. It's great to be here. It's always fun to spend some time with the Vine Pear crew. Thanks for having me. Of course. So Shannon, among all these other things, you're also a rum expert, which is pretty awesome. And we definitely want to talk about women who tiki and your book and everything else. But first, we'd love to hear more about your interest in rum and cane spirits and how you came to be so familiar with the category. And also, you touched on this briefly in a piece for Vine Pear, but how you learned about the history of rum cocktails and their significance in modern day drinks culture, because I think that's really interesting and something that people probably don't know a lot about. Yeah, um, I, I like to say I was drafted into service here as um, prior to becoming barrister director at Gladys Caribbean this was in 2015, I knew next to nothing about the category. So for those of you who may be less familiar with the New York bar scene over the last decade or so, at that time, there was next to nothing going on where rum cocktails, tiki or otherwise are concerned in the you know influential bar spaces. If you looked at back bar, maybe there were three or four options in, in most spaces. And for myself, you know, prior to taking that job, my main interest in spirits and cocktails was more based on uh, American classics, pre-prohibition era cocktails, gin and whiskey. Up until that point, I think maybe I'd had three or four rums tops, you know, Bacardi, Smith and Cross, Blackwell's, Gosling's maybe. I think that was the extent of it. So I didn't know anything. And I think you know, looking back, it was actually beneficial. I had, you know, no preconceived notion going in, you know, as to what the category was going to be like or, or what I would end up doing um, with uh, the, the drinks as a result. So I had about 30 days to taste somewhere between 200 and 250 yeah. rums to come up oh with our goodness. opening selection of 50. Yeah, it's, it's hazy. That's why I say 200 <laughs> or 250, because those are some hazy days. But they're, you know, really enlightening and eye-opening. And I was pleasantly surprised and shocked by, you know, what I discovered as I, I started to taste um, through, you know, rums from all over the world. Um, up until that point, the only thing I knew about rum cocktails were that, you know, there's a mojito, the daiquiri, and I'd never had a really good one up until that point. And then a handful of tiki drinks that I've heard of that are, you know, pretty ubiquitous, like the Mai Tai or the zombie, and that was it. So I, I took a deep dive 
first by reading Jeff Beachbumberry books because he just released Potions of the Caribbean. And it was a really cool primer on the history of rum in the Caribbean and how that led up to the invention of tiki. Uh, a lot of people mm-hmm. think of him as a tiki guy, but the book covers quite a bit more than that. And that was super cool. I also read books like Cuban Cocktails. Um, Jane Danger, formerly of San Fuego, was one of the authors of that book. And those were kind of like my crash course guides to learning about rum cocktails. Now, when it came to learning more about uh, the role that rum drinks played in the history of American cocktails, that kind of came a little later, you know, a few mm-hmm. years in the opening the bar when I had a little more time, um, wasn't so caught up in the, the day-to-day minutia of running that program, I started to revisit books like The Ideal Bartender by Tom Bullock, um, the Jerry Thomas Bartender's Guide, um, looking at books like Punch, and realizing that um, in colonial America, rum was the spirit of choice um, first because it was the easiest thing to get here. And this is before, mm-hmm. you know, corn and wheat became a staple crop and, you know, people weren't really making a lot of whiskey. It, it just made more sense to either get rum from the Caribbean as part of trade or to bring up molasses and do distillation here. Um, so yeah, fun fact, you know, the favorite spirit or preferred spirit of George Washington was actually Barbadian rum. And so, you know, I learned that the earliest punches were made with rum. Some of the earliest examples of the mint julep were based on rum. There were examples of the old fashioned that were also based on rum. These kind of started to kind of fall out of favor in the 1850s. And maybe we can kind of unpack that a little bit later. But yeah, um, rum is the basis of American drinking culture. Hey, uh, Shannon, I want to touch base on the Caribbean as it serves as a major influence, or I should say a hub for rum. And I'm currently in the Bahamas right now. I'm currently on the island. And what I've noticed is that rum plays a big part in the culture down here and the drinking culture down here. And I wanted to ask you, do you draw any inspiration or share any background um, in terms of the Caribbean influence on rum? I know you touched on, you know, you reading books that touched on the subject of how rum is such a big influence in the Caribbean. But did you use any Caribbean styles or any Caribbean influence when you're, you know, starting off making rum cocktails? Oh yeah, it was absolutely essential that I did it because I really wanted the bar at Gladys, and this is Purdy owner's, you know, passion and point of view on why he even wanted to do this concept in the first place. I wanted to reflect the way it would feel to taste and drink rum and rum drinks as if you were on the island. So you know, the menu of the restaurant, the centerpiece of it was wood-fired jerk, and that covered not only chicken and pork, but seafood with, you know, really simple, you know, set of side dishes, and a vibe was just meant to feel like a beach shack, right? So I didn't, I didn't want to deviate from that where the bar is concerned. I started off with a really simple menu that were based on traditional things that you would find on an island. So for instance, the rum punch was 
we always had one on the menu. It would, it would rotate seasonally, but we needed to have that because that's authentic to when you spend time in the Caribbean. Likewise, we had a painkiller that was, you know, based on the same one you get um, at the soggy dollar bar. Mm-hmm. Our daiquiri that was on the opening menu was based on a historical recipe from Bar Florida in Havana that a lot of people had mm-hmm. not seen in the U.S. for some time. And I thought having that history there was really important too. And, you know, over time, um, as the restaurant kind of grew it, Oh man, I'm so sorry about that. <laughs> okay. Um, again, it's a new computer. I don't know how to turn these notifications off. Um, so, um, uh, so I did, you know, start, you know, eventually put kind of edgier drinks in the menu as time went on. And as our clientele kind of grew with the times in the neighborhood, this is Crown Heights, mind you. So, but I didn't want it to be about like my take on rum from the outset. I want it to be on the authentic experience of rum. That's what we were selling. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I got to let my personality come out a little bit, you know, as I got more comfortable with it as well. I mean, case in point, you know, one of the things I learned about rum, you know, while I was tasting through all the bottles was that there are some rums that you see on islands that you don't see in the U.S. and vice versa. So I tried to have this healthy mix of bottles that are very ubiquitous in the Caribbean and maybe you never see in a U.S. bar. And kind of go easy on bottlings that are actually more designed for American consumers and never really show up in the islands. Right. You know, so Mm -hmm. one specific example, uh, Forest Park is a punch and rum. That's an overproof white rum from Trinidad. Bartenders don't use that stuff. But I had guests Mm -hmm. that totally lit up when they saw that we had punch behind the bar. I mean, it literally got lit. So <laughs> I wanted to make sure that someone could, you know, revisit what it was like growing up there or visiting, you know, whatever island they've been to. Right. And Shannon, what did that feel like behind the bar? Because you mentioned before that you you were coming into this from, from a kind of professional place of doing like maybe the modern American classics as we know them, or, you know, like the cocktail renaissance drinks. And, you know, those are really high quality drinks, but in some respects, maybe like the setting is a little darker or maybe people take themselves quite seriously. Whereas it sounds like, you know, trying to transport people to the traditional settings where, where you'd enjoy these cocktails, like, did it change the way that you experienced just kind of service and drinks and interacting with guests? Well, up until that point, I'd work primarily in kind of like fast, casual Brooklyn neighborhood type spots. For instance, like I worked at Saragina. I worked at uh, Do or Dine before it was Do or Dive. I, you know, did stints at other places as well, but I did prefer a more neighborhood feel. Um, So Mm -hmm. for me, I felt like I was disguising elevated cocktails in this like casual form, like they were served very casually and, um, you know, they were, I I needed them to be as good as drinks that you find in the East village or, you know, in similar programs, Mm -hmm. I was really adamant that we were only using fresh pressed lime juice, which at that time was kind of crazy because 
Mexican cartels were like putting a squeeze in the market and each lime cost a dollar. My, the owner was, was Whoa. like, are you crazy? And I was like, I remember we're not that using, time. it was so nuts. <laughs> and it was like, right before we're opening, I was like, we need fresh lime. He's like, huh? I was like, yep. We're not, I'm not using prepackaged wow. juice in these drinks. I just refused because I knew that rum didn't have a great reputation at the time. And in order for that program to be successful in my eyes, I needed people to experience not only authentic rums, but also the best quality version of these drinks so that they wouldn't walk away thinking mm-hmm. they had yet another sugary rum drink. Like we even mm-hmm. went so far as to squeeze our juice to order at the bar for each daiquiri that we made. You know, I wanted mm-hmm. to send that message to the guests that like it's not coming out of a cheater bottle. You can mm-hmm. see that this is actual fresh lime juice that we're squeezing right here in front of you for this daiquiri that you're about to get. Mm-hmm. So speaking to the freshness of citrus being so important to any cocktails that use it, uh, but especially tiki, do you think that tiki drinks or rum drinks that incorporate things like lime or other citrus is, is something that will become part of this larger ready to drink RTD canned cocktail space? Or do you think it always has to be, you know, right there in front of you, fresh made? No, no, it doesn't always have to be. Uh, again, there's, there's different kind of geeked out opinions about squeezing it right then and there or squeezing it before service. Okay. So I was doing that as a way to send a message that people could see that it was fresh. But um, from a more kind of scientific perspective, if you juice it a few hours before, it's actually better because a little bit of oxidization gets into the juice and will kind of like balance it out better. Whereas if you're doing a la minute, there's a chance that the flavor can be slightly off. But there's a way that we did, we, we built that drink that would kind of offset that problem. But um, nevertheless, yeah, the, the juice should be pressed the same day and not used the next day. And I don't see that going anywhere because it's just so standard right now that any bar that doesn't keep that level of quality, they're just not going to be able to compete. Right. What about as bars are creating like cocktails to go or, um, you know, some of the pandemic born um ways that bars are creating more prepackaged drinks do you think there's a chance for tiki to like to move into that rtd space i love that you asked because as chance would have it i just made a tiki rtd this weekend (laughs) for a pop-up at um fuchsia in new pulse oh my god um yeah i worked on this in collaboration with amon rocky he supplied one of the ingredients in the cocktail and it's called Bird of Paradise. It's a white jungle bird. And we did use mm. a combination of citrus and citric and malic acid solutions for shelf stability. So I think mm. you'll see some people, mm-hmm. you know, if, they, if they're canning the cocktail, that's what we did. Um, they'll err more on the side of using malic acid and citric acid just so it keeps longer. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's mm-hmm. like a to-go that the bar is reasonably confident the guest is going to consume within the same day or two or whatever, I, I still see people doing fresh juice, like Strong Water in Anaheim. Like they do fresh juice and most of the other programs I do, that I know of do that as well. But when you start moving to the can, that's when you're going to see people kind of veering off in the two directions of, you know, 
are we going to just do juice only? Are we going to do juice and acid? Or are we just going to do acid? In the case of what we did at Fuchsia, it was juice and acid. In the case of another project I'm working on that I cannot divulge here, I can tell <laughs> you about it after we wrap because it's not been announced yet. Um, I'm doing an RTD with an LA-based company and we're just using acid in, in this uh, cocktail. Interesting. Oh. Yeah, so I guess a follow-up to that is, I mean, you were talking about how you you got more confident with your cocktails the more time you spent at Gladys. What, and I'm, I'm guessing that, you know, guests were receptive to those drinks what what do you think the future of tropical cocktails is and what do you envision your role will be in that yeah so you know one of the things i observed since like when gladys opened there was next to nothing going on rum cocktail wise mm-hmm. and then you started to see like more mainstream programs have things like a jungle bird or a Mai Tai, or at least the ingredients to make it if someone asked for it. Mm-hmm. You start to see the daiquiri emerge as like the bartender handshake. We call them snackeries. Like you go into the bar, your friend's working, <laughs> and you get like a little half daiquiri or you do little shots of daiquiris with your friends. Like that's basically <laughs> a thing no matter where you go, be it Tiki Tropical or otherwise. Snackeries are every that. day. I love that. <laughs> it's like a, you know, it's just a way of saying I love you. Um, so, <laughs> you know, that's, you know, that's done. And now you see, you saw, you know, a place like Blacktail open and, you know, that was a Cuban mm-hmm. style bar, but they, they did a little bit of tiki here and there. And now it's kind of come full circle where I, I know there's some people that are questioning whether tiki is something that we want to keep doing, given the cultural connotation. So you're starting to see bars and restaurants just kind of go in a more either nautical theme or tropical theme, right? So there's like Navy Strength in Seattle. They have tiki drinks. It's mm-hmm. not a tiki bar. Uh, there's Hello Coconut in Washington, D.C. Again, it's a you know kind of tropical bar with like a Polynesian-ish seafood menu, but it's not tiki. They're not saying that they are. I mean, mm-hmm. even locally, um, a place like Diamond Reef, you know, that's that's more of a nautical mm-hmm. type bar. So I think the tropical drinks are basically going to um, start to encompass other spirits apart from rum as well. You know, as you see people move away from overtly tiki themes. So that's when you see like more agaves, more margaritas, um, even things like pisco and brandy starting to make an appearance. Mm-hmm. So the, the drink builds might kind of resemble tiki drinks, but they can be a little simpler, like maybe four ingredients instead of like seven or eight, because guess what? Tiki bars are very expensive to run. Like they're hmm. like, if you want to go broke as an operator, open a tiki bar, right? And so <laughs> I, I think especially <laughs> post-pandemic, operators have to be, you know, more cost conscious mm-hmm. and also labor sure. conscious. You know, tiki programs are very labor intensive. Like the Polynesians prep crew. Mm-hmm all by themselves, I'm sure their, their payroll allocation rivaled the whole bar staff. Like that's how much production has to go into that. So wow, I think there are going to be, you know, some people that, you know, continue to love the genre. Um, but I think it was starting to see just more tropical and nautical bars like come into play now. And Shannon, I, I kind of wish we were having this conversation last week because I had a real world 
scenario where I could could be asking this question and wish I had. But um, to that end, you know, with kind of tropical drinks, many of them requiring a lot of ingredients, I was wondering if you could give us any tips or, you know, certain things that you should always have on hand, but, you know, maybe a small selection <laughs> that would that would open up like a range of possibilities um, and possibly not like Polynesian re- levels of of prep because yeah they they went pretty deep <laughs> yeah I'd say there's like three syrups three juices in three types of spirits that if you always had them you could come up with like a really simple punch no problem so where the syrups are concerned like you want to have like a cinnamon clove syrup and that's it's simple syrup that's infused with cinnamon and cloves it's so easy you just like put the spices in there mm-hmm. let it simmer um honey syrup it's also really easy to make. It's just half and half honey and water or maybe two to one. You can also add spices to mm-hmm. that. Um, vanilla syrup is nice. It's a little more subtle. And mm-hmm. if you're doing drinks with like gin or vodka, that is a really nice complement to the, the flavor profiles of those types of spirits. Um, important to note that with vanilla syrup, you want to use like a vanilla bean, like you want to use a split pod as opposed to an extract. Mm-hmm. An extract will do in a pinch, but it just doesn't doesn't really give you everything. No, no, not the same. And some of the things I mentioned, you can buy already. So, you know, those are really easy things to make at home. And if you want to like add one more thing that comes across as a tad exotic, like you can buy passion fruit syrup. There's a couple places online to get that. You can also buy orja, you know, if you don't want to make it yourself. So I would say those, well, five syrups, right? Of course, there's like at least 10 that I could rattle off, but you know, those three you could easily make at home. And then the other ones you can order online from numerous sources. Like that's where I would start with in the syrup department. And then in terms of juice, obviously, you know, fresh lime and lemon, that just kind of goes without saying you have that at any bar, home bar, Um, pineapple juice, again, um, really easy to get. I like Dole. I think it's decent quality Mm -hmm. if you're not making it yourself um passion fruit juice and then a juice that i don't really see people use too often i encounter this mostly in the french caribbean guava juice is delicious and it works really well either with rum or with agave and tequila Mm. that sounds delicious oh it is everything like i visited martinique a few years ago and every restaurant has this drink called the plantier which is basically planter's punch and it's just guava and rum and it's so good Wow. Exactly. Yeah. Easy. <laughs> uh, there you go, Tim. Yeah. And then yeah. <laughs> I guess like anything else I would add to that, like, of course, like rum, have some tequila, um, pisco or brandy, you know, and then you're basically sad. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I use whiskey in my tropical drinks too. It's kind of like a lesser known kind of niche there, but I mean, it's all about the modifiers. I can definitely see Yeah. That. And I love using rye whiskey in my tropical drinks. Hmm. Shannon, you talked about this very quickly about tiki and its its past and you know maybe problematic past. Um, you you wrote a book called <laughs> Tiki. <laughs> how how do you think your book redefines what people know as tiki? Yeah, so I think what my book did or does and this is my intention was 
to just kind of open up the idea of what a tiki drink was, because up until that point, the majority of the tiki books had historical recipes, and yet it would have like a scattering of originals or newer drinks. But by and large, if you open up any tiki book before mine, about 80%, 90% of those were all classics, and I flipped it around. So, you know, I had 20 classics followed by 70 originals. And the whole idea is saying, hey, tiki is an approach to making drinks. And you don't have to use this narrow set of ingredients that you see recurring throughout the tiki canon. You can take any ingredient and make it into a tropical cocktail. Though for me, the philosophy behind tiki is just balancing complex flavors. And I, I thought to myself, well, you know, this genre was invented in the 30s when there were only so many things that you could get in the United States to make drinks with, right? And that time has changed. Mm-hmm. And so I would say to myself, well, what would Don do? I feel like I should make a t-shirt that says that. <laughs> Don Beach. Like if Don Beach had mezcal, I'm sure he would have been using it. You know, if he had That's a great lemongrass one. or galangal or, you know, Buddha's hand, I'm sure he would have used it. He just didn't have it. So- yeah. That was the idea. It's like, hey, man, it's it's about layering flavors. Use whatever you like and make it interesting. Sounds great. <laughs> I mean, I looking back, I'm like, I don't know what I was on. There was like over 300 <laughs> ingredients in that book, and I'm kind of afraid to write the next one. Oh it was God. nuts. <laughs> my editor's like, what is the next uh, proposal? I'm like, Ugh. I mean, I'm not going to do that again. I learned my lesson. <laughs> Maybe the next one is like three ingredient tiki drinks. <laughs> I mean, you're kind of hitting it on the head. We're, we're heading Brilliant. in that direction. I was like, yeah. let's make everyone's life yeah. easier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Shannon, you know, like with with your incredible, uh, you know, experience with rum and the time you spent now kind of with the category, it feels like rum remains one of those spirits that, many people might describe as like the next big thing, especially like maybe sort of more aged rums. I'm not sure whether that does it a disservice, but um, I still think it maybe hasn't quite reached the levels of, of maybe a whiskey or a tequila. And like, where do you think rum is currently in its journey in the United States? And maybe returning to that glory where you were saying it was the most popular liquor in, in this country. Well, you know, among rum circles this idea that rum is going to be the next big thing this has been a, a rumor that's been circulating for 15 years and <laughs> we joke right. we're, it's like we're waiting for the messiah to come back you know like we're we're sitting there praying and um <laughs> and it hasn't happened as of yet but um i can just say I think there's some good signs, though, that it could be closer than we think Mm -hmm. for a couple reasons. One is that it has been embraced by the bar community. You know, bartenders love rum. They they figured out that you can do a lot of things with it in cocktails that you can't do with other categories, mostly by virtue of how diverse the category is. So, you know, it, it comes from over 90 countries there's no one universal standard or definition apart from it has to be based on sugar. And as a result, the diversity mm-hmm. of the category means that it's it's almost akin to wine. And of course, I'm a little biased because I worked in wine prior to working in rum, but I think that there's, you know, a lot of good 
a good case to be made for that. So from a bartender's perspective, it's a really intriguing category because there's such a range of things that you can pick out of it. Then when it comes time to make drinks, unlike other categories, again, um, rum is amenable to mixing various bottles together. In fact, that's kind of like inherent to the development of the category, um, you know, mm-hmm. that you would take rum from a couple of different islands or different ages to create a blend that you desire. And bartenders, you know, really resonate with being able to have that kind of flexibility with the spirit, as opposed to you wouldn't do that with multiple gins because that just runs counter to the idea right. of what a gin is meant to do or express. You wouldn't do that with whiskeys, etc. cetera. Um, so I think, you know, bartenders are doing a lot to introduce the consumer to rum and they're doing it in a setting where, you know, as a consumer, if I don't know much about the category and I go to Astro Wine and Spirits and I see 200 bottles, I'm just kind of like at a loss. But if I go to my local and my bartender pours me a couple, then I start to get it and I understand what it's about. You know, the education piece is, is really big. Um, meanwhile, I've seen the selection and variety of rums in the U.S. explode over the last five years. Uh, when I was working on setting mm-hmm. up Gladys, it was almost a struggle to find those 50 bottles that I felt really good about pouring. Mm-hmm. Um, now, or as of you know, when the restaurant was last open, I couldn't fit enough. I, I didn't have enough space for all the bottles that fit my criterion. And, and the criterion in this case was a certain level of quality and production, um, authenticity mm-hmm. to tradition, you know, things along those lines. I mean, there's just so much more product to choose from now. So I think the fact that bars have been leading the charge has emboldened producers in the category to start offering more releases and better and better products. It's almost like about to hit like a mezcal tipping point, like where mezcal was maybe a decade ago. Um, I mean, just think about like when Vita came out and that was kind of like the only game in town kind of like how Plantation for a time was mm-hmm. like this one house that was representing the category as a whole. Um, we're, we're getting there. Um, Shane, I mean, that was that was great. You broke down um, pretty much, you know, the future of Cocktails and the future of rum. And obviously there's, there's a rumor circling around 15 years that it may or may not come back. But <laughs> either way, um, I do want to ask you now your future plans, you know, for the upcoming year or just where do you see yourself um you know obviously giving people are getting vaccinated and we might see the emerging of you know of bar culture come back or we may not and i just wanted to know your opinion on you know where do you see the future of that and where do you see yourself fit to that as well yeah um bars are going to come back because people love to socialize i mean we, we can't eliminate that out of human nature. I think we're going to start to see different types of bars. You know, I, I think rooftops, outdoor spaces, you know, they're going to have like a, a handy advantage. And I think anybody moving forward with new projects are definitely going to be prioritizing outdoor spaces so that, you know, as we ease out of the pandemic, they feel like they can comfortably offer guests not only a safe experience, but one that actually feels good, you know, 
Um, so I think that's going to be, I mean, it's already been a big trend. I think it's just going to become like more of a priority. Um, I think, uh, to go on RTD is still going to be big because there will be people who won't want to go out as much as they did in the past. And they've, you know, come to enjoy drinking at home or, you know, not exposing themselves to as many people as they they may have done before. So I think RTD is going to continue to grow. I'm curious to see like how that starts to get integrated into bar programs. And I I just say that because, you know, I recently met a business called uh, Can Cocktail Company and they make RTDs custom for bars. They were the ones that did the RTD that I served this weekend upstate. They have a upcoming restaurant and a retail location in the West Village where they'll be, you know, pouring cocktails from the various clients. We might see more of those. Interesting. Yeah, canned cocktail company. Look it up. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as me personally, well, I, I may not look it, but I'm, I'm getting older, guys. And, um, <laughs> you know, I worked in hospitality for like 15 years. And mm-hmm. I was planning... When I started at Gladys six years ago, I, you know, in my conversation with the owner, in my interview, I said, this is going to be my last restaurant job. I, I plan to consult after this. Um, and I did start consulting maybe three years ago. And when a pandemic hit and the work that I was doing was largely attached to bars went away. And thankfully, I'd already kind of had enough momentum to shift into consulting full-time, which I've been doing for the past year, and which I expect to continue to do. So, you know, what that looks like, practically speaking, is I create recipes and educational content for brands. And some of that is aimed at consumer, some of it is aimed at their internal team. And that could be a mix of everything from you know, I'm making recipes, I'm giving seminars, putting branded content on my social media channels, leading seminars, be they virtually or in person, recording training videos, like that's, my education is my passion, you know. I forgot how much I, I miss doing seminars. I had a lot of fun this weekend. So that's what I plan to be doing for the next, um, for the foreseeable future. And also I've, um, I've entertained the idea of creating a product and working on this RTD, which I can, again, elaborate on a little bit later, um, is kind of like my first four-way into that because the, the company that I'm working with has let me in on the, the marketing conversations and strategies, and they're incorporating my ideas into that. And, you know, I was approached to create a rum brand a few years ago, and it, it wasn't a good time for me, but I would certainly welcome that opportunity because it would be a lot of fun for me to take, you know, what I've learned about rum over the years and be able to find something special and bring it to market. So a couple things. Yeah. There's more. I might end up in front of the camera too. I've been approached by a few outlets to develop shows. Yeah. So basically uh, plan to become like, you know, the uh, Martha Stewart or like Rachel Ray of cocktails. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Yes. (laughs) That's a dream. You're friend. <laughs> that would be wonderful. That all sounds so exciting. Uh, I feel like it's a great, great moment to end our chat. Um, thank you so much for taking the time today, Shannon. Yeah, 
was so great to talk to you. No, no, this was super fun. It was great. Yeah, I think I think we're all looking forward to our next tropical cocktail, maybe this weekend, and <laughs> we hope to yeah, hope to share one with you soon. <laughs> well, if you guys know where to find me, we can always do a Zoom happy hour. It's not a problem. Yeah. Yeah, there we go. So nice. <laughs> yes, we can get Elgin in there too. Love it. Eldrin, I kind of hate that you're in the Bahamas right now. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this week's episode of EOD Drinks. If you've enjoyed this program, please leave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps other people discover the show. And tell your friends. We want as many people as possible listening to this amazing program. And now for the credits. End of Day Drinks is recorded live in New York City at Vine Pairs headquarters. And it is produced, edited, and engineered by Vine Pairs Station Director, yes, he wears a lot of hats, Keith Beavers. I also want to give a special thanks to Vine Pairs co-founder, Josh Mallon, to the executive editor, Joanna Schiarino, to our senior editor, Kat Walensky, our senior staff writer, Tim McCurdy, and our associate editor, Katie Brown. And a special shout out to Danielle Greenberg, Vine Pairs art director who designed the sick logo for this program. The music for End of Day Drinks was produced, written, and recorded by Darby Seaside. I'm Vine Pair co-founder Adam Teeter, and we'll see you next week. Thanks a lot.